This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Piarosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in Chapter 7, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Life is full of choices. Big and small, we come to crossroads all the time and we're asked to make a decision. Today, Jesus is asking us to make a decision too. He'll present three contrasts for us to consider, but they all represent the same thing. Will we choose to follow Jesus or not? The answer to that question will determine everything that comes after, including what comes after this life. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. In his concluding remarks in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers a series of contrasts. There are three of them very specifically here. We're going to move fast through the text here. So I want you to stay with me. In the first one here, in verses 13 through 14, Jesus presents contrasting destinations. Contrasting destinations. This is what he says. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So in the first pair of alternatives here, Jesus is calling upon his listeners to decide between salvation and condemnation. Now understand that the key verse of all of this is Matthew 5 verse 20 when Jesus tells them, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And now in the concluding remarks, the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, enter through the narrow gate. He is commanding his listeners to make a decision. And by doing that, he says, you need to discern between salvation and condemnation. How do we know that? Because it says one of them leads to life. The other one leads to condemnation. In other words, becoming a born-again believer is a matter of obedience to God. When someone rejects the gospel, church, we need to understand that they're not declining a religion. They're not just opting for something that suits them better. They are rebelling against their creator. They are rebelling against the God that commands them to enter through the narrow gate. Jesus then offers two figures of speech, gates and roads or paths here. And they represent the same spiritual reality, two opposite eternal destinations. But here's the logical application of the metaphor. No one can fit good works into the narrow gate. That's the reason the gate is narrow. People must enter stripped of any self-righteousness, and they must recognize their own poverty of spirit. That is why the gate is small, church, because many people by default believe that the gate is wide enough for me to bring all my spiritual credentials. And Jesus says, no, 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 you are blessed because you have recognized your poverty of spirit. Remember the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. When you recognize that you are poor in spirit, you realize you can't bring anything to have no credentials, no works. So no one can come to Christ on that day in heaven and say, I'm here because of my own merit. And that is what he is talking about here in direct contrast with the way of the scribes and Pharisees. That's why he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that, you will not make it to the kingdom of heaven. And now he says, but now I tell you, you must enter through the narrow gate. You must make a decision. 
Otherwise, you will be destroyed, meaning not simply you will cease to exist. You will endure everlasting punishment. And he talks about this in a moment. Now look at verse 13 again. Well, the first part of the metaphor, the Jesus metaphor here, illustrates salvation that few people find. On the other hand, the wide gate and the broad path symbolize condemnation. This is not hard to understand. He's putting two opposite notions together in illustration here so that we can understand. And consider this, church. The road has to be wide, the road that leads to destruction. Think several lanes of traffic wide. And why is that, church? Because it is crowded. That's why Jesus says few people find the narrow road. Obviously, then, most people will be on the wide road, the one that leads to destruction. Because not only do the multitudes think that they can bring their works into salvation, they think they can bring all their baggage. Most people believe that you can enter heaven through a group. That's a core teaching of cults, church. And Jesus says, no, the gate is small enough for only one person to make it through at a time. There's no such thing as going into heaven because you've joined a group, because you've joined a religion or a club or whatever the case is. That's a core teaching of cults. Cults say, unless you join us, unless you join this group here, then you're going to miss the train to heaven. And Jesus says, nothing can be further from the truth. Notice, the gate is small enough to admit only one person at a time. Unless you yourself come to your own realization that you are a sinner and you fall short of the glory of God and you need a Savior, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus Christ is saying in Matthew 5.20. That is surpassing righteousness. Anything less is substandard. It's pharisaical. That's the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that he condemns all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Becoming a subject of the kingdom of heaven is not a collective experience. But I want you to know, church, that more than just inviting his listeners to discern between salvation and condemnation, Jesus calls them to decide life over death. That's what verse 14 is all about. You you must decide life over death. And this is what he means. He doesn't kidnap anybody into the kingdom of heaven. You need to decide, okay? He commands people to enter because he is not willing that any should perish. But church, he does not bring anyone into the kingdom kicking and screaming. You must decide. Now, notice with me that the original verb fine here communicates the idea of a deliberate consideration of the claims of the gospel rather than an irrational decision or a compulsory thing. It implies a search has taken place. An investigation of the claims of the gospel has taken place. And once you realize that you are a sinner, that you are poor in spirit, then enter through the narrow gate. But we know how these things go, church. Many people consider the claims of the gospel. Many people will hear the message of salvation in Christ, and they'll say, no, thank you. I'd rather get to heaven on my own. Or they'll say, I don't believe in that, as if that makes any difference. What we believe, church, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. Reality kicks in at some point, and we will have to face our Creator one day, not those of us who have been born again, but people who have rejected Christ. If they say, no, I I, I prefer the secular way, I prefer the wide road that says there are many ways to God. I prefer the the wide road that says, "Hmm, that's your truth, I'll take my truth, and we'll hold hands and we'll be happy together. There's no happiness in the image that we see next here, church. And that leads me to the second point here, the second contrast or a second pair of alternatives that Jesus presents here. He presents contrasting perceptions. Not only contrasting destinations, but now contrasting perceptions. Look at this, verses 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. A terrifying picture here. And in this pair of alternatives, what Jesus does, first of all, he calls his listeners to discern between appearance and reality. Verses 15 through 20. Discern between appearance and reality. Jesus warns now about people who direct others to the white road. He's saying there will be people directing you or waving you to the wrong way, to the wrong road, and the one that leads to destruction. But he starts this whole thing with another command. Beware of these guys. Beware of them. Know that they're out there. And in order to make his point, to assist us in understanding this, he presents three more figures of speech. And the first one is very simple. These people, the false prophets, false teachers, infiltrate the flock unnoticed because they pose as shepherds. The sheep's clothing here is a reference to the tunic that prophets or teachers used to wear. But they are, in fact, hypocrites. Again, that's not a hard metaphor to understand here. These guys are people who come to the flock pretending to be shepherds, pretending to be teachers. But Jesus says, beware of them. Because they don't lead you to the narrow gate. Because they themselves are not on that road. They are on the opposite road, the one that leads to destruction. And they want to take as many people with them as possible. Why? Because all they want is popularity. They want people to follow them. And by the way, these guys are the scribes and Pharisees here in the immediate context that Jesus is talking about. Beware of them. The wolf here, the the picture of a wolf, symbolizes their true nature and desire to kill. The desire to bring division to the flock, the desire to scatter the sheep so that they can divide and conquer. Now, spotting a false prophet is not necessarily easy, church. How do we know that? Because nothing immediately stands out as alarming until they open their mouth. And that's the second illustration here that Jesus uses to help us identify false prophets. He says, look at their fruit. In other words, the evidence of their labor. What do they have to show? They may have an impressive track record, an impressive resume, Many accomplishments, but look at the real fruit. What have they done? Now look at the third illustration here, a tree. Again, there's all connected illustrations. Fruit examination. That's what he's talking about. Fruit examination. And it demands diligence. And it demands careful investigation, but eventually reveals the quality of the false teachers. Because specifically where the root is. When he's talking about a bad tree and a good tree, how do you define, how do you discern between a good tree and a bad tree? You look at their root. Now, what is the root of these guys? False teachers usually are rooted in what? In church, self-promotion, personal ambition, and the love of popularity. They're after a following. They want people to follow them because they themselves are on the road that leads to destruction. They want the admiration of people. How do we know that? Because in Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus says, Don't do any of these things for the admiration of people. Don't pray like the hypocrites do because they're in it for the admiration of people. Don't give money like the hypocrites do because they do it for the admiration of people. Don't fast like these guys do. Why? Because they are in it for the wrong reason. See, they're bad trees. And because they're bad trees, they have bad fruit. They're not rooted in the right thing. 
So church, the lesson for us then is how do we identify false teachers according to what Jesus is telling us here? Simple. Does he or she promote the narrow way or the small gate? Or are they promoting the broad way and the wide gate? And furthermore, does his life reflect conformity to the righteousness that Jesus demands in the previous two chapters? Simple. And then once you determine that, then don't follow them. That's the message for, for the listeners here of the Sermon on the Mount. Once you have determined that, ignore them, reject them. Actually, call them out if you have a chance to. But more than invite his listeners to discern between appearance and reality, Jesus calls them to decide acceptance over rejection. And that's what we see in verses 21 through 23. And that's the terrifying picture I was telling you about. And the horrifying picture here of the fate of the bad trees. You see, there's a connection there. He talks about the bad tree that is cut up and thrown into the fire. And he says, this is the end of these guys. This is their final fate. And what he does is he takes us to the day of the great white throne judgment. When unbelievers will be judged and sentenced. And Jesus clarifies in no uncertain terms here that an outward profession of faith does not guarantee anything. Because of what they said. Well, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And they will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Then the obvious charge for us, church, is this. Know how to identify these guys and don't follow them. Their titles don't mean anything. They can be called apostles. By the way, they shouldn't be called apostles. That's a red flag right there. Whether they're called pastors, reverend, vicar, whatever. What I mean by that is their title don't mean anything unless their lives and their message back them up. Let their prophesied fate be a warning to all of us. It does not matter. It does not matter who rejects you if Christ has already accepted you into the kingdom on his merit. Church, and that's the point. It doesn't matter who rejects you. And by the way, people will reject you when you stand for the truth. But that doesn't matter. It shouldn't be relevant at all. Now, conversely, it doesn't matter who accepts you if Christ will reject you on that day, which he will only do if you refuse to enter through the narrow gate. So Jesus contrasts your salvation and condemnation, life and death, appearance and reality, acceptance and rejection. But look at the third pair of alternatives that Jesus presents here, verses 24 through 27. He presents contrasting foundations. So contrasting destinations contrasting perceptions and now contrasting foundations, verses 24 through 27. These are all connected thoughts. Remember, this is not a collection of disjointed ideas, but they are all connected by the context. And Jesus says this, therefore, and by the way, that's how we know he's coming to an end, to the conclusion of this entire thing. And this is the invitation when he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now here's what he's doing. His words now invite his listeners to discern between wisdom and foolishness. These are the contrasting thoughts. And he offers a very simple and clear picture of two different builders, two opposite builders. One is wise, the other is foolish. Their view of the words of Christ guides their metaphorical construction project. Do we understand that? This is what he's talking about. Their view of the words of Christ guide their metaphorical construction projects. One embraces while the other one rejects the wisdom of Christ. 
The house wisely built withstands the fury of natural elements, which, church, symbolize here divine judgment. But here's something else in this illustration here. The forces of nature may also represent the troubles of life in a fallen world. How do we know that? Because David, the psalmist, helps us understand that when he writes, I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. That's in Psalm 55, verse 8. So you understand that? Immediately, what he's talking about here is divine judgment. But also, secondarily, he's talking about the forces outside of our control that represent the troubles of living in a fallen world, in a world of sin. The house poorly built then will succumb to these forces, both in this life and in the final judgment. In verse 26, then, Jesus warns us against indifference to his wisdom. The foolish builder is not interested in spiritual matters. But according to Christ, even the unwise contractor will build a house. So we understand that metaphor. We understand the figure of speech here. Now, let me give you a modern example, okay? The unwise builder lives by whatever spiritual system fits him at the moment. That, that is very modern. That is very Western. I, I just live by my own principles. Whatever fits me at the moment, whatever truth works for me. Now, his own desires guide the construction of his life. As a result, church, he builds his life on shaky ground. All it takes, all it takes is a loss of a job, a death of a loved one, a major disappointment, a pandemic, political turmoil for him to crumble because he's got no solid foundation. And most likely he will resort to unhealthy coping mechanisms because of the loss of his house, metaphorically speaking, like alcohol and drugs. He may turn to pornography to escape reality and feed his wounded ego. He may self-medicate to feel better, which keeps him from seeing the opportunity to rebuild. This time on a solid foundation of the word of Christ. And church, I realize I may have just described some of you. But what a great day to start a rebuilding project, is it not? And here's the blueprint of that rebuilding project. You cannot build your spiritual house, your metaphorical house, on any other principle than the words of God and expect to withstand the fury of the unexpected and uncontrolled forces around us. But first things first, you need to meet the chief architect. The good news is always available. He wants to hear from you. He's never too busy, and he's eager to hear from you. Now, he calls me his ambassador and friend, even though I am his slave and servant. And I consider it a great privilege to serve him. Now, somebody did that to me once and instructed me to build my house on the solid rock, on the words of the words of Christ. And my metaphorical house has withstood the test, a proverbial storm assaulted my house violently when I had to bury my newborn daughter. A metaphorical hurricane slammed against my house violently when I had to bury my only son. You want to know, church, what sustained me and my wife through these times? Right here. The Word of God. When we were overcome by sorrow, we cried out to Him, Lord, how do we do this? How do we cope with this, Lord? We don't know how to do this. We need strength for one another. You know what he did, church? He led us to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, over and over again. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And when we begged him for renewed joy during our darkest hour, he did something much better. He taught us to boast about our weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in us. That can only happen with people who know Jesus Christ, my friends. If you don't know Christ... If you have not yet built your house on the solemn foundation of Jesus Christ, you are in for a big disaster, not only in this life, but in the final judgment, unless you 
build again. You restart. His words here not only invite his listeners to discern between wisdom and foolishness, but really what he's doing is he's calling them to decide gain over loss. You need to decide between gain and loss, verses 26 to 28. And by comparing those two metaphorical houses, he encourages his audience once again to choose correctly. You must choose wisely. You must choose. If you built your spiritual house in the seeking sand of human wisdom, my friend, or on your own system, not only will you not make it to the kingdom of heaven, but it would only be a matter of time before your world implodes because you have no foundation. You cannot avoid the figurative rain. You cannot avoid the floods and the winds of the troubles of this world. These are forces outside of your control. But what you can do, what is within your control, is to make the right decision. So you need to decide to obtain gain over loss if you are not yet in Christ. And if you're building your house on the sinking foundation of sand, meaning you have heard the words of Christ, but you decide not to follow them. If that's you, you are in for a big disaster. You need to obtain gain over loss. How do you do that? You start over again. You ask God to say, Lord, I want to start over. I want to build my house on the right foundation of Jesus Christ. And you know what else he says? According to Matthew 16, verse 26, it says this, What will a prophet a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? So my friend, if your foundation, if your life is not built upon the foundation of the words of Jesus Christ, you may gain the whole world, but you are forfeiting your soul. Because on that day, you are at risk of hearing those words, depart from me, I never knew you. So my invitation for you today is really Jesus' invitation for the people who are listening to him on the mountain here. Come to Jesus today. Enter through the narrow gate and receive everlasting life. Receive freedom from the control and condemnation of sin and receive the peace that exceeds all understanding. And you will also receive renewed hope. So again, just to summarize the whole thing, the three pairs of alternatives. He's presenting them two contrasting destinations, two contrasting perceptions, and two contrasting foundations. And he says, you need to decide. You need to make up your mind in who's going to be the foundation of your life, whether it's yourself or whether it's Jesus Christ. But listen to how Matthew reports the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached. Verses 28 through 29. He says this, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And by the way, we're going to see how he proves that authority now in chapters 8 and 9. Jesus Christ showing the power of the majestic Savior. He's going to say, this is my authority. I have authority to heal. I have authority to cast out demons. And I have authority to even control nature. We're going to look into that. But uh, the people were astonished. They, they were impressed because Jesus Christ did not have to consult any other teacher. But Jesus Christ doesn't teach like that. He says, I don't need to do that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the one who fulfills the law. I don't need to quote from any other teacher because I am the incarnate word of God. No, he's the fulfillment of the law, the prophecies, the word of God made flesh, the truth that sets us free. According to what John says in John 8, 32, the one about whom Peter said, you have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And likewise, church, most of us here turn to no one else for words of life because we have come to know and believe that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. The question for you is this. Have you? The road to eternal life is narrow and the gate is small, but the good news is that it's always open. You can still make the right decision today. In fact, John 3.16 tells us that that gate is open to whoever believes. So it's uh, decision time for us this morning, church. And um, I'll tell you what I have decided already. 
It's right from the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15. When the people of, of that time were told to choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods with your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So my question for you today is this, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve yourself? Are you going to serve your own motives? Are you going to serve your own philosophy? Or are you going to embrace the words of Jesus Christ and build your metaphorical house in it? The decision is up to you. The alternative is terrifying. Your house was not going to stand, and you are at risk of being separated from God forever. Not as a matter of, oh, you cease to exist, but you will suffer forever. That's a terrifying picture. So enter through the narrow gate is the summary of the message we preach here at Grace Baptist Church, because that's from the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. You've rescued us from the darkness of self-righteousness and from thinking that we could make it to heaven on our own, Lord, and you have led us to the truth. And we thank you for that, Lord. And it is now our great honor and privilege to communicate to the whole world that there is salvation in no other name, Lord. And it is our great honor and privilege to do that. And we pray, Father, that we will continue to do that as long as there is breath in us, Lord, as long as we are alive, Lord, May we be faithful to that message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.